Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. children of the night. I am your host for the evening, Stephen Kilpatrick. We are continuing to wander the streets of Savannah on our vacation. This week takes us to the former site of a home at 401 West Perry Street in the downtown area. This was the home of Eliza Gribble, formerly of Cornwall, England, but she had settled into Georgia just before the Civil War with her husband, who had passed one prior to this part of the story. Living with her was her daughter, Carrie Olander, and a lady who had been taken on as a renter just the day before the events in question. Her name would be Maggie Hunter. Maggie was estranged from her husband and had intended to make her living as a seamstress. Her husband, J.C. Hunter, had moved a sewing machine into the house with his distant wife. The relationship was a bit unconventional even for 1909. J.C. had served with the Georgia Volunteer Infantry in the Civil War until he was wounded in the Battle of Atlanta. After the war, he had served jail time twice, once for horse thievery and the other for bigamy. His wife, Maggie, was 30 years his junior, and it was reported that he would frequently refer to her as his daughter. Now that that stage has been set, on December 10th, 1909, all three women in the house were found assaulted with an axe. Two of the women were dead by the time the authorities arrived, but Maggie Hunter barely held on to life, slipping in and out of consciousness. The story immediately became national news. In fact, the Los Angeles Herald reported that the following day, Quote, 150 Negroes are prisoners in the police station awaiting examination, unquote. Rioters attempted to storm the jail in outrage. Some things still haven't changed much in this country. Eh, listeners. About this minister tending to the mortally wounded Maggie Hunter would notify police that the delirious Maggie had named her husband as the person who had struck her with the axe. The police searched J.C.'s home and found a sack of bloody clothes. The Chatham County Grand Jury indicted three men, including J.C. The other two did not make it to a criminal trial, as they were dismissed for a lack of evidence. J.C., however, found himself sentenced to execution the following year. However, he proclaimed his innocence during the entirety of the trial. 
On December 21, 1911, the day before J.C. Hunter was scheduled to be executed, he was baptized by the very same Baptist minister who had reported Maggie Hunter naming her husband as the murderer. J.C. continued to claim innocence. He was then told that the governor of Georgia had commuted his sentence to life in prison. And then 22 years later, Governor Clifford Walker pardoned J.C. Walker, who then returned to Savannah for, as far as we know, the rest of his life. Let's get on to our fiction. The first story of the night comes to us from Susan Thornton. Susan Thornton is a teacher and a writer living and working in Binghamton, New York, USA. Her book, On Broken Glass, Loving and Losing John Gardner, published in New York by Carol and Graf in 2000, is a memoir of her love affair with the American novelist who died in 1982. He has published short fiction and poetry in a number of literary journals. This story, Sybil, is an update and an homage to the 1902 horror story classic The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. In the show notes will be a link to her published memoir on broken glass, loving and losing John Gardner. Now we will hear her story, Sybil. The noise of the party receded. The small furry object in the glass case curled over, as if it were hiding something. The artfully blonde young woman traced its shape on the glass with a manicured nail, wondering whether it had really moved. For an instant, the thing had seemed alive. You've traveled such a lot, Adrian. These are your mementos? Just some bits and pieces I've picked up over the years. Nothing too special, I'm sure. No, this one. On the top shelf, this little furry thing. I bet there's quite a story behind it. Can I get you another drink, Sybil? Sybil glanced at her host, then, with childlike intensity, back at the display. I don't want another drink, Adrian. I want to know what's in this cabinet. If you insist. He stood next to her, bending his dark head, breathing heavily, and inserted a small key. The cabinet door swung open. I wouldn't touch it if I were you. But it's adorable. Like a paw of some kind. Like a rabbit's foot. No, I know just what it's like. Ignoring her, Adrian turned to her husband. So, Peter, you have all of your inoculations? You'll need the works, I'm afraid. The climate's beastly. I've had the works. Peter spoke up from the couch. Gamma globulin, typhus, even yellow fever. Like, uh, just like, uh... Sybil continued her musing. Quite a coup you scored, Adrian said. Being sent to Quazambwe to cover these elections. Wish I were going myself. Do you? Peter's tone was languid. Like a freeze-dried gerbil, Sybil said triumphant. Just like a freeze-dried gerbil. What looks like a gerbil? Peter joined her, draped his arm in its J. Crew sweater over her shoulders. He had a high forehead and shiny, almost white blonde hair. He pushed it back from his brow with his large, blunt hand. Your wife has been examining my trophy case. Before Peter could comment, a low, husky voice brought the party back to them. Is that your magic wish thing, Adrian? The one that gives you three wishes? Yvette strolled over, her long legs moving easily beneath her black microskirt. 
It is. And have you tried it? I have, and I wish I'd never. With a sudden movement, Adrian grasped the object. You don't want this thing. I don't even know why I keep it, he said with fury. It's damned. He strode across the room and flung it into the fireplace, his saturnine face working with disgust, and Sybil noted fear. Don't do that, Sybil surprised herself. Peter, do something. To Adrian, she said, you mustn't destroy magic. There's too little magic in the world. On the contrary, my dear, I should say there's too much. Peter grabbed the fireplace shovel and scooped the paw out of the coals. Why throw it in the fire? Give it to me, said Sybil. Here it is, hardly damaged. You really like it? It's very attractive. The paw was singed. The little finger curled up more than it had before. Sybil stroked the leathery palm, cleft by deep lines. The desiccated flesh puffed up like trapunto needlework, noted the pointed green nails. She felt poised on the edge of a great possibility. At the same time, the pawn nestled in her hand, as if it belonged there. She was reminded of a childhood toy, a stuffed mouse holding a grain of corn between its paws. Her skin tingled and her ears rang. The city lights outside seemed suddenly bright enough to blind. Keep it, then, and be damned. You'll be sorry. Why, Adrian, you look so grim. Peter's tone was surprised. Sorry? Sybil asked. Who could be sorry to have how many? Three wishes? Why, I wish for things all the time. The next morning Peter sipped his coffee, absorbed in his papers. Now you won't be going out into the country, will you? You'll stay in the capital? Of course I will. He adjusted his pen and continued to list addresses and phone numbers of embassy personnel, of his hotel, of the consulate. He wouldn't look at her. Don't worry. I'm not worried. I just... He looked up then, smiling. Don't look at me, she moaned and covered her face. What a memory for you to take away with you. I must look awful. Her unlined face, with its pale, creamy complexion, was puffy with sleep. He reached across the table with his large, warm hand and stroked her cheek. My poor honey with a taste for scotch. Some of the best people in the world drink scotch. All your friends drink scotch. Expensive scotch. So they do. He frowned at his pen. She put down her coffee cup. Aren't you scared to be going off to Quasambui? Scared? Scared of what? Peter, most of these countries weren't even on the map when we were in grammar school. Now they're having wars and elections and famines, and you want to go and write stories about them. I work for a national magazine, and I have a book contract. Don't you want me to be a success? But you'll be so far away. Even if we can talk on the telephone, it's a long flight back. Would you rather I not go? Sybil bit her lip. No, you should go. It's what you want, after all. But, Peter, you won't go out into the bush, will you?
you'll stay in the capital where it's safe? Of course. He stroked her hand. Of course I will. Now tell me again what you plan to do while I'm away. Sybil sipped her coffee. I'll look for an apartment. So when I get back, we can move out of this charming little dive above Columbus Avenue into... something airy and wonderful over on the east side. That should keep you busy, finding something in our price range. Oh, I know I can. Besides, you've got that advance, haven't you? On your book proposal, The Rise of Democracy in Africa. It sounds so wonderful. It sounds wonderful. But the book isn't written yet, and I need the advance for travel money. Sybil poured a second cup of coffee. A real estate person doesn't need to know that. Peter put his hand on her upper arm. You'll be all right here, all alone? Sybil looked at him. Of course. I'll be awfully busy, finding a place and moving. And there's lots of lunches to catch up on, and you won't be gone so frightfully long, will you, darling? Only a month or so. It will seem like forever. He looked into her eyes, and her stomach did a little flip-flop that had nothing to do with the scotch she had drunk the night before. She looked hard at the table, but couldn't stop the tears from coming. Hey, what's the matter? I'll just miss you so much. He pulled her out of her chair and embraced her. She clung to his neck. Now this one would be a nice one for you. The real estate agent, Ethel, turned the key with a precise click and flung open the door. Sybil caught her breath. The apartment seemed to float over the city. As she watched, a jet soared across the sky, nosing down into LaGuardia Airport. Now, on the other side, if you'd rather have a city view... Ethel's heels clicked on the terrazzo floor, and her bracelets jangled as she drew up the blinds. Framed by the opposing picture windows was the Empire State Building. The great advantage of a floor-through like this is its livability. You have options. You have freedom. You have choices. For example, the master bedroom could be here. Ethel waved her arm. Or over there. For intimate dining, you have this small area. She indicated a breakfast nook opposite the kitchen area, with a freestanding island and butcher block counters. And for more formal dinners, you'll be entertaining a great deal? Sybil nodded. You have this room as well. Ethel flung open the glass doors to reveal a formal dining room with crystal chandelier. Downstairs there's the health club, for residents only, of course. Each bath in this apartment is equipped with a jacuzzi, and the former owner installed a sauna. Sybil was dizzy. This was the first place she had seen, and she believed strongly that first impulses were the correct ones. When you thought about things too hard, you got into trouble. Her marriage to Peter had been an impulse, and it was the best thing in her life so far. My husband is a writer. Oh? She imagined disapproval in the taller woman's tone. He's out of the country working on assignment. He has a contract with a very prestigious house. Authors can make a lot of money, Ethel said. All you need is one bestseller. He'll need a study. You do have three bedrooms here, and you don't have children? The tone was tentative. Sybil shook her head. In this neighborhood, you have all the best schools, but it's wise to sign up for them early, as the waiting list can be formidable. 
Your husband could use one of these rooms. She opened an oak-paneled door. Sybil let out a small, Oh! of surprise and approval. It's lovely, isn't it? The built-in bookcases are mahogany, and the mantelpiece is genuine Ferrara marble. The former owner used this as a library. He was the bookish sort himself. Ethel cast a shrewd look at Sybil, and withdrew. Sybil ran her fingers along the mantelpiece, then went to the sliding door that led out onto the small balcony. She rejoined the taller woman, who was studying some papers on a clipboard. "'What's the price on a condominium like this?' Sybil made her tone casual. Ethel gave a silvery laugh. Her bracelets shinked against each other. "'Don't think of it as a price, my dear. Think of it as a passport to elegance.' She consulted her papers looked up with a radiant smile. This particular apartment is a real steal. The price would be much higher, but the previous owner is willing to let it go to a good tenant, someone like yourself, for a very good price. He's asking only one million, too. Sybil blinked. Now, ordinarily, this apartment— with the location, these views, the personalized touches, the private elevator, and customized library, would be more in the neighborhood of a million eight. But current circumstances make the price much more affordable, don't you think? Sybil fought an urge to sink down onto the polished floor. Anything near a million dollars was so far out of the price range she and Peter had agreed to that it was ludicrous. And yet, why not? She thought with sudden anger. Didn't she deserve the best? Hadn't she scraped and saved and lived in ratty student apartments long enough? Shouldn't life be lived? Didn't she and Peter deserve the best? I'll have to get in touch with my husband. Sybil said, faintly. He's out of the country. It may take a few days. Ethel frowned. I'd advise you to get in touch with him as soon as you can. A peach like this won't stay on the market too much longer. We have a very rapid turnover in our agency. You know we're the most successful brokers in New York. Sybil nodded. You have my card, then. The taller woman smiled. I'll look forward so much to hearing from you. Over lunch, a lovely sea bass in papillote, laced with garlic and oil, and a bottle of white Bordeaux at her favorite East Side bistro, Sybil confided in her friend Janet. Didn't I tell you Ethel was the best realtor in Manhattan? Did she show you a gorgeous place or what? Janet said. Her eyes flashed under her cap of dark, straight hair, cut square across her forehead. Yes, it's gorgeous, but no, we can't afford it. It's way over our heads. Sybil signaled to the waiter for another bottle of Bordeaux. And Peter could have his own space. It's got a study for him. He's got a study now. In your west side place? Don't make me laugh. That's a broom closet. That's where the maid hung her coat, for God's sake. That's where you'd store the cat pan if you had a cat. That's not a writer's study. Janet paused as the waiter deftly opened the new bottle and poured for each of them. Listen, money's only relative. Money's not the issue here. The issue is how do you want to live? You're in the most exciting city in the world. You're young. You've got your life before you. You're in love with your husband. Who of us can say that? You deserve the best, and you should have it. Forget the money. You can always get the money. Listen. You want to know a secret about money? Janet leaned across the table, 
pushing her plate slightly forward. It chinked against her butter dish. Money follows purpose. Remember that. Money follows purpose. One of the immutable laws of the universe. She waved her narrow hand with its flashing rings. You can always get money. People make fortunes on the stock market overnight, all the time. You want the apartment? You should have the apartment. Besides, today's your lucky day. It is? Aren't you using that chart I made? My chart always works. And on your chart, today's your best day for luck and for financial affairs. Sybil was looking across the room. Adrian and Yvette had entered the restaurant and were headed for the bar. She grabbed Janet's arm. Look over there. At what? That couple. Phew, Janet let out her breath. That Armani jacket, strictly to die. You see who I mean? And how? This is interesting, Janet. It really is. She's married to someone else. How do you know that? That's Adrian, you know. Adrian somebody. Very famous journalist. He gave a party for us the night before Peter left. And that's his little friend, Yvette. She was there, too, with her husband. Hey, this is fun. Watch this. She extended her arm, threw back her head, and waved. An animated look on her face. Adrian looked around and caught her eye, and steered Yvette in the direction of Sybil's table. Adrian, what a surprise! What an interesting surprise! She glanced at Yvette. An opportunity to thank you for the simply lovely party you gave for Peter before he left for... before he left on his trip. And Yvette, how lovely to see you, too! I thought you and your, uh, husband were on your way back to Paris. This is my friend Janet. Adrian bowed, urbane and calm. Won't you join us? It's always so crowded here at lunchtime. Adrian glanced at Yvette, but her cool profile gave nothing away. I think not. We just came in for a drink, but it is lovely to see you. Peter got off all right at the airport. No last-minute delays. No, none, but really, won't you join us? To let me thank you for the lucky piece you gave us. She let go of his arms, but her fingers lingered on his wrist. The lucky piece? You know, the freeze-dried gerbil. Oh, yes, quite. His face darkened. Sorry, we can't join you. We both have appointments in a few minutes. Must rush. He disengaged his hand and looked thoughtful. Best to Peter when you hear from him. Yes, yes, Sybil waved. When they were out of earshot, back at the bar, Janet leaned forward. What was that about a lucky piece? Sybil explained. Well, this solves one problem. One problem? Your money problem. It does? You have a wish thing, don't you? Use it. Use the wish thing? Sure. Don't you have it with you? I have it right here. Let's see it. Sybil withdrew the small tissue-wrapped package from the bottom of her bag and held it out to Janet. That is gross. Janet drew slightly away. It's your wish thing, after all. Let's see if it works. Sybil held the hard, furry object in her hand. Okay. Freeze-dried gerbil, do your stuff. She closed her eyes. I wish I had a million dollars. She started and dropped the paw onto the tablecloth. What is it? It moved. It moved in my hand. Sybil's voice shook. Well, it's not moving now, Janet observed. 
Pick it up and put it back in your pocketbook. People are staring. You don't want everybody to know you have a genuine wish thing, do you? No, but... Here, little more wine. Steady your nerves. Listen to me. How much do you and Peter have in the bank? Sybil told her. Right. Now, you take that and you go back to the real estate firm right now after lunch. You don't want to lose that great apartment, do you? And you put a down payment on that condo. But that was what we planned to spend for the entire purchase price, not just the down payment. Sybil's tone was panicky. So don't worry. You've got a million dollars coming in the mail right away now with this wish thing. It'll work. It's in your chart. Now come on, drink up. I want to get over to Bloomy's. They're having a white sale. One week later, Sybil was standing in her new apartment with its floating view of the East River, supervising midnight movers. Janet frowned and pointed. No, 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 not over there, over here. How many times do I have to tell you? Honestly, Sybil, you'd think they'd never seen a nice east side apartment before. Oh, Janet, do you think I did the right thing? I know you did. Peter is going to be so pleased with you. I can see the feature in People magazine now, with the two of you posed in front of that great view of the Empire State Building. Now, you're going to need curtains, and it certainly won't do if you try to match them to that awful couch. What awful couch? Honey, what's shabby chic on the west side is just shabby on the east. Yellow just won't go here. You need a sophisticated look, don't you agree? And you'll need to get a piano. But neither of us plays the piano. You don't have to play it. You just need to have it. This room just cries out for a piano. Don't you agree? Honestly, have a little imagination. Janet stood in the center of the room, holding outsized pieces of tracing paper on which she'd drawn furniture layouts. An apartment like this needs to have a look. You can't just fill it hodgepodge with all your old stuff. But I like my old stuff. Sybil's tone was close to breaking. I know, dear, I know. And a lot of it is quite, well, nice, really, for sentimental reasons. You can put it all in one of the rooms in the back. But this is the first room people will see when they come into the apartment. It needs to make a statement. You'll see when Willie gets here. As a favor to me, he's agreed to decorate at a fraction of his usual. As if on cue, a bell rang. Sybil looked around. That must be him now, Janet said. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. 
Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Step to the intercom. But instead, the doorman said he was sending up a registered letter. That's odd, Janet said. It must be from Peter. Have you heard from him lately? No, as a matter of fact, I... Sybil didn't finish her sentence, for the door opened and a uniformed messenger stepped into the apartment. Janet watched as she signed for the letter. Go on, open it. Sybil turned it over in her hands. It's from the publisher. But it's addressed to me. I don't get it. Well, open it up. Sybil slit the envelope with her index finger and drew out a letter. A check fell to the floor. In accordance with our agreement with Peter H. Madison III, enclosed, please find... She looked up. That's all it says. Something about an agreement and a check. She stooped to pick up the check, glanced at it, and sank down onto the couch so recently dismissed as an ugly yellow and not at all right for the apartment. Sybil looked at the check in her hand, pointed at it with her finger. One, two, three, four, five, six. Sybil, what are you... You were right, Janet. It worked. The wish thing worked. The little freeze-dried gerbil. Sybil looked up with a radiant expression. You were right. Oh, I could just kiss that, Adrian. She flung her arms wide. Now I can afford a decorator. She waved the check. It's a check for a million dollars. Made out to me. Not to Peter. Made out to me. I can pay cash for this apartment. Do you believe it? The doorbell buzzed again. I'm glad to hear you can finally afford Willie, Janet said in a tone of some asperity. You don't have to do me any favors, you know. But the buzzer was once again not Willie, the interior decorator. Instead, Adrian strode into the room, wearing a cashmere polo coat, with a patterned silk scarf draped casually under the lapels, just so, and a serious expression on his face. "'I've had the devil of a time getting hold of you, Sybil. I had no idea you'd moved. I went by your old place, and the movers gave me the new address. "'You're just in time to help me celebrate, Adrian.' Sybil jumped up and ran across the room, and would have hugged him had he not stepped back in time. I've just... it's like a wish come true. It is a wish come true. I just got a check in the mail for a million dollars. A million dollars. Oh. Adrian stood at the margin of the room. The check's arrived, has it? You know about this? Sybil looked suddenly bewildered. I knew you knew about the wish thing, the little gerbil thing, but I didn't know you knew about... My dear. He took a step forward and took her hands in his. She was too surprised to protest, and noted only that his hands were cool and firm. She allowed him to guide her to the couch. My dear, I have some bad news for you. You're going to have to be strong. It's Peter? Something's happened to Peter? Now, my dear, let me start at the beginning. Peter checked in with the head office and was immediately into the bush to contact the rebel chiefs. But he promised me. 
He knew how dangerous it was, of course. He promised to call the hotel, but the communications lines were down for several days, and then we got through to the bureau chief, who said there had been a skirmish. The rebels dispersed, and a body was found, the badly decomposed body of a white man. Of course, I hoped against hope, but we do have a positive ID. I'm so sorry, my dear, and the check you just received was for the insurance, just a courtesy, a policy the publisher took out on Peter's life just before he left the country. The check, oh, the awful check. Oh, I don't want it any more. I want Peter. Let me get you a drink. Adrian looked at Janet. Is there whiskey? Even Janet was silent in the face of this news. Some time later, Adrian had gone, leaving Janet alone at a makeshift table made of packing boxes. Sybil had finally fallen asleep on the couch. When Sybil awoke, it was dark outside. The lights of Manhattan blazed up, blinding. She watched for a moment, dazed, then called out, Janet? A light came on, and Janet walked into the room from the kitchen. Can I get you anything? She had a glass in her hand. A drink. I'm thirsty. They sat at the kitchen table in silence. It's awful. It's too awful. A million dollars and no Peter to share it with. Sybil held her head in her hands. I'm so sorry, sweetheart. I wish. Sybil jumped up. Wish. That's it. Wish. Her face lit up. The wish thing. Where did I put the wish thing? She hurried through the living room, turning over cushions, looking behind packing boxes. At last she found her purse on the floor, by the entry hall. She rooted through her cosmetics, tossed aside her brush, and found the small, hard package wrapped in tissue. Sybil radiantly held up her prize. This is it. This will bring him back. I know it will. It worked the last time. Why shouldn't it work again? Janet looked worried. I'm not so sure this is a good idea. How can it not be a good idea? It's a great idea. Sybil unwrapped the dark paw with its lined palm and pointed green nails. She grasped it firmly in her hand, held it high, and declaimed in a ringing voice, I want my Peter back with me. I wish I had Peter back. There. As before, she dropped the paw. Her face had an odd expression of mingled revulsion and triumph. What happened? It moved again, Sybil whispered. It moved. That means it's going to work. Oh, Janet. She grabbed her friend's arm. We're going to be so happy. Janet poured more whiskey into their glasses. They drank in silence, listening to the hum of distant traffic. Janet avoided looking at the furry thing on the table between them. At last she said, Are you sure this is such a good idea? What do you mean? I mean, you wished for a million dollars and you got it. It worked. But then you got word that Peter was... I mean, there's got to be a catch to it somewhere. Do you know how many wishes you have on this thing anyway? Is it unlimited, like a gold card, or what? Sybil looked thoughtful. Yvette said there were three wishes. There must be a catch. She held the furry object between her rosy palms. I've got a million dollars. Pretty soon I'll have Peter back, I know. She held up her freeze-dried gerbil and said, And I wish Peter and I will be together forever. Ugh! She dropped it with more vehemence than before. That thing is really gross. It moved a lot that time. 
Janet looked relieved. That ought to do it. That ought to take care of things. Now you're all set. The two women sat at the kitchen table through the rest of the night, only occasionally getting up to get more ice or, towards dawn, to open another bottle. At one point, Sybil fell asleep in a kitchen chair. Janet made her move to the couch facing the windows, where they watched the sunrise over the East River. Janet was breathing so quietly that Sybil could hear every creak on the strange apartment. When she heard footsteps in the hall, she knew it must be Peter. "'Wake up, Janet! Wake up! It worked! He's here! Oh, I am so happy! This is the best day of my life!' Janet sat up, rubbing her eyes. "'Here already? From Kwazambwe? "'It's magic, isn't it? It's wishes! Listen!' Now they both heard the measured, thudding tread in the hall. Nearer and nearer it came, mounting steadily, growing in noise and nearness, a little unsurely, perhaps not confident of its footing. Each tread was followed by a soft, liquid sound. Thud, scrape, slide. Thud, scrape, slide, thud. Sybil frowned. That's not Peter's step. But if it's magic, what took him so long? He probably went to the other apartment. I didn't tell the gerbil I'd moved. Sybil moved to the door, and the footsteps stopped. But why didn't the doorman announce him? A knocking commenced on the door, a series of odd double blows, not loud, almost polite, but muffled, as if made by a rotten leg of lamb, the meat striking the door before the bone. A peculiar shiny liquid seeped over the door sill, carrying with it a fetid odor. The doorknob jumped like a live thing. I'm coming, Peter, darling. I'm so glad you found me at this new place. You'll be so happy when you see what I've done. Janet watched from the couch, her hands to her mouth. Sybil pulled open the door and froze as she saw what was on the other side. Oh, my God, Janet gasped. Make it stay outside. I will, I will. That, that's not my Peter. What have you done to my Peter? Sybil leaned across the table, grasped the paw that lay next to her empty glass. She aimed it at arm's length at the thing in the doorway, pushing at the scored leather palm as if it were the remote control of a TV set. I wish you would go away. I wish you would please go away. But the narrow fingers with their green-pointed nails and dark fur did not jump as before. This has to work. This has to work, Sybil repeated. She pressed the monkey's paw as hard as she could with her thumb, frantically repeated her latest wish as the undead creature in the doorway stepped over the sill, its arms extended to embrace, its open mouth saying her name. That was Susan Thornton's Sybil, as read by Josie Babin. By day, Josie is a biologist, a happy little cog in the grand machine known as medical research. When not at work or enjoying the great outdoors of San Diego, she can be found at home with her three loving companions, two feline and one human. She records in a tiny bedroom library surrounded by literature and scientific works, as well as a few video game boxes. Thank you, Josie. Our second story for the night will be from Reagan T.M. Pazuzu. Reagan T.M. Pazuzu is the mildly possessed half of Reagan W.H. McCauley. Besides writing horror stories and horror-slash-comedy screenplays, Reagan is a producer and director of theater, film, 
and television, writes various kinds of stories and several other genres and works as a canine and feline massage therapist. And now we will hear her story, The Institute. The last thing she could remember was the bite, ragged and messy right into her jugular. She was bitten in the street, a warm, wet, seeping sensation on her neck, a sharp turn of her head, and then blackness. Then this. She opened her eyes, and she was flat on a hideous carpet face down. A long, shoddy office hallway stretched before her, carpeted in a color somewhere between ambiguous beige and ennui gray. She pushed herself up on her hands and immediately felt a shudder deep inside her guts. It was as though someone had tickled her insides with sandpaper. She stopped moving, then lowered herself back down. Next, she attempted to flip herself over. Fireworks exploded in front of her eyes. Had she twisted herself in half somehow? She felt separated and vulnerable the most basic way, and she could not feel her legs. As she turned over, she felt the familiar, warm dampness of blood soaking her midriff, and that sandpaper more urgently irritating now. She propped herself up again by her elbows, and every move was a stroke of torture. The searing of pain widened out her vision. She waited for her sight to return. Carefully, she looked down at her torso, only to find that that was all there was left to look at. Everything from her crotch down was gone. Everything beneath her breast was guts and blood. A menstrual cycle gone wrong. Claudy, bright crimson, pink, and burgundy shades of meat glowed up at her. She could see her ribs were broken, and what remained poked straight up like fractured branches through the red wet. They were cracked aside so that all within could spill out like a waterfall of entrails. Gagging, she closed her eyes and fell back to the floor. She should have blacked out, but she pulsed with agony with every panicked breath, which kept her conscious. She looked to either side of herself and saw only ivory walls with cracked paint and wear and tear, the epitome of banality. She lifted herself onto her elbows again, pushing through the pain just enough to see there were no doors or exits at the end of the hall in front of her. She let herself drop again and stared into the rectangular fluorescent fixture above. On cue, it sputtered and began a pattern of constant flickering. Her heart was still pumping, and with each pulse it pushed pain through her as well as blood, which had pooled considerably around her. She couldn't remain in the wet. She had to find a way out and figure out what was going on. With all this absurd blood loss and organ damage, why wasn't she dead? She pushed her palms into the carpet, thinking to propel herself backwards on her back, but the carpet clung to her. It held her in place in the morbid puddles stuck to her meat. She reached back, crying out in a spasm of pain, and dug her fingernails into the wretched wool fibers. She struggled against the clingy carpet. Her eyes spilling with tears, she stopped and examined her fingers. Scraped, wet, and bloody, she screwed up her face and barked out a sound only as loud as her sensitive guts would allow her to bellow. The fluorescent light blinked above her as if signaling to her Morse code. She imagined it was taunting her. Was there a special code for laughter, or was it just H and A over and over again? She could almost hear the fixture's cackling echo inside her ears. Summoning as much strength and courage as she could, she flipped herself back onto her stomach with a groan. She could swear she felt something vital separate and fall right out of her. A squelching sound issued from her abdomen, causing another gag. At the end of the hall she now faced, she could see a stairwell and one lonely door on the left just beside the exit. The door was open a crack, and she could see a faint light within. She stretched her arms forward and grabbed the carpet. As she heaved herself along, the carpet allowed her movement. White spots sparkled before her eyes as the feeling of sandpaper inside her bowels and organs turned to full flame unleashed within her underside. She wondered if the carpet was made from wool or scouring pads. Her ears rang. She couldn't tell if she was weeping aloud or not, but her mouth was hanging open and drool spilled out of it rather matter-of-factly, so she assumed that she was. She thought about looking behind her to see if anything vital had been left behind in the smear of blood she surely trailed, but she could not bear to. 
physically or mentally. Help me, please, she screamed, then her throat closed. Was her stomach gone? Or disconnected, perhaps? She couldn't vomit. No answer came while she waited. She pulled herself forward again, repeating the same horrific process of sparkles, gagging, and burning pain where there should never be such pain. Please, she whispered harshly as she at last inched toward the door left ajar. Yes, come in, Miss Jensen, come in, came a nasally high-pitched voice from somewhere within. Please, I need help, she groaned. You'll have to make your own way, I'm afraid. Tepid tears dribbled down her already wet cheeks. She stretched out her arms again slowly and pulled and pulled and eventually pulled herself over the threshold, batting the door aside bitterly. The room was dim and empty, but for the short miniature desk before her at the end of the office closest to the stairwell. It was too dark to discern the color of the walls, but she assumed they were probably ivory and cracked, just as they were in the hall. There was a filing cabinet with a false wood finish peeling at the corner sitting against the wall to the left of the mini-desk. An old picture tube television sat on top, but she was most puzzled by the creature behind the short desk. He hovered, yes, hovered, behind a green-shaded banker's desk lamp. He looked like a tiny half-skeleton floating on a cloud, soundlessly farting puffs of smoke like an exhaust pipe. He wore a black hoodie. Do forgive my attire, he said like a magnanimous chickmunk. I find it cold in here. She drew forward into the room, towards the desk that stood at a perfect height for someone dragging herself on the floor. She felt a stab of cold hardness hit her intestines. The floor in the room was ceramic tile. The slabs were icy, but somewhat of a relief compared to the burning hallway. She practically glided up to the desk, but could more readily feel her own seepage. Who are you? she gasped. I am the Transition Enhancement Coordinator, chirped the skeleton demon. What are you? she wheezed. Now, now, Jensen, manners. Even here, negative notes on your inhumane resources file will not help you. Where is here? This is the Institute of Self-Imposed Incarceration and Harsh Punitive Techniques. What? she sputtered, coughing, then swallowing something back down her throat. She didn't even want to think what it might be. Why am I here? What's happened to me? The coordinator picked up a clunky gray remote control and pressed one of the large buttons, barely even pointing it at the television atop the filing cabinet. The screen popped on and an image of a snowy neighborhood faded in. She blanched as the camera zoomed in on one home, a home of privilege, her parents' home ten years ago. The scene was still and no cars were parked in the driveway. Cut to the backyard of her childhood. The back door opened and she watched a younger version of herself hands wet with blood, carrying a squalling child just recently born. She placed the child in a snowbank and retreated into the warmth of the house. The image froze, on pause. Does this refresh your memory? The coordinator asked with a toothy smile. She felt her guts churn, emotionally this time. She couldn't bring herself to say anything. All right, he murmured, turning back to the screen and pressing another large button on the remote. The image changed to a bathroom, her bathroom in her condo last year. Wretched groans and moans filled the room as she observed an image of herself on the toilet. Blood was splattered on the floor and seat. Her year-younger self hollered and clenched her teeth. She was pushing another baby out of herself. She let it drop into the toilet. She breathed heavily for several moments before rising and closing the lid. Pause. The coordinator turned to her. Ever hear of abortions? He asked with a quizzical frown. So I'm in hell? She spat back. We don't use that term here, he explained. We find it doesn't properly describe every level, every floor. This is a floor for people like you. What does that mean? Hell is hell, right? I mean, what do you mean, people like me? The afterlife is different for every individual, he continued. 
And here at the Institute, we try our best to categorize and group some similar people together, as well as other people that can help us carry out the harsh, punitive technique component of the program. You mean torture? She said, tears streaming again. The carpet in the hallway, it's like that on purpose, isn't it? I'm gutted like this because, because this is how you choose to torture yourself. Yours is a more visceral pain because you know you did wrong. You're flogging yourself, in a sense, with your own guilt. I don't deserve this, she screamed, stopping short, tensing against the stab of agony that followed. I'm afraid I've heard this before, replied the coordinator. He seemed to attempt an expression of sympathy, but it looked more like a grimace. There was nothing I can do. This comes directly from a deep subconscious layer within your own soul. So you're saying that if I had no conscience, if I was some sort of sociopath, I wouldn't be punished? No. It's simply that a sociopath's hell is very different from yours. It's not about guilt for them. They have none. It's about the gnawing and biting of the chasm deep inside themselves. The numbness they knew in life becomes overwhelming. They experience a great nothingness, even greater than they would have experienced in life. He scribbled a brief note on a pad of paper in front of him and opened what looked like a date book and thumbed through it. She was about to complain about his phony sympathy or his nonchalance when the phone beside the desk lamp erupted with a sound like a rusty bicycle bell. The coordinator held up a bony finger, indicating he needed a moment, glided over to the phone and answered. Transition enhancement coordinator, he said cheerfully into the receiver. He listened a moment. She could not hear the other voice. Thank you, was all the coordinator added more testily. He slammed the receiver back into the cradle. It cracked at the seams. The phone was made of cheap plastic and appeared as though it had been manufactured in 1982. Budget cuts, he said by way of explanation. Then he looked her over through his deep, empty eye sockets. The rapist will see you in the stairwell in half an hour. Rapist, she cried. Some people who are also condemned and who help carry out the harsh punitive techniques. In this case, your harsh punitive techniques. What, what are they going to rape? She asked, looking back at her mangled half-body. The coordinator shook his head brusquely. I don't ask them how they do what they do, he replied. But they'll fill out a report at the end of the day. So I'm dead, she said, changing tack. The coordinator seemed pleased she brought this up. He raised the remote of the TV again, and this time pressed the large red button. See, there's your corpse, along with millions of other zombies fulfilling a self-fulfilling prophecy. The world is punishing itself. The collective conscious is avenging its mortal compass. Just like you are now, here at the Institute. She watched her zombie body chewing on a small child's thigh. The child struggled and screamed, but her corpse paid no mind. It revolted her. The people of the world have a social conscience, so therefore the world is ending? No, no, the world would end no matter what, the coordinator replied impatiently. The world is ending in this particularly gruesome fashion because of man's social conscience. You're not really following this, are you? It's guilt? The coordinator nodded, sighing, then turned back to the television and changed the channel. Rotisserie chickens filled the screen, rotating leisurely and tantalizingly. She watched them turn a moment, then shook her head. I don't understand, she whispered. I know you don't, replied the coordinator, still entranced by the chickens. I don't know how I could come up with something like this to punish myself. And where are all the others you spoke of who are supposed to be on the same floor as me? The hallways are multidimensional the coordinator said, waving her away. There are thousands of people on this floor. You just don't know it. He looked down at his wrist. Don't you have an appointment to keep in the stairwell? She felt her eyes widen. I'm not actually going to drag myself to the stairwell voluntarily. The coordinator very gradually turned his head towards her. His expression, if you could call it that, chilled her. He seemed to smirk, and his eyes, if possible, were even emptier than before. Yet it seemed a flame had been ignited deep within. It was something she felt rather than saw, like an invisible laser beam trained on her, unnerving her utterly. Her will crumbled. 
Her hands moved across the tiles and pulled her across the floor, back over the threshold, back to the hall, back to the wool carpet. All the while, she felt the laser gaze upon her, boring into her like nothing she'd ever known before. The wool in the stairwell would be a respite compared to this. She waited in the stairwell for what felt like many hours while continuing to bleed out. No one came. She wondered what this might mean, but it somehow made her feel abandoned. She thought about returning to the little office to talk to the coordinator. Then the image of those eyes, or rather eye sockets, swam into her mind. She would not return to his office any time soon, so she remained in the stairwell and waited. And waited and bled out more than 400 times her weight in blood. And that was Reagan T.M. Pazuzu's The Institute, as read by Rachel D. Ever since she was a young girl, Rachel has had a deep love for reading stories and performing, both on screen and stage. Over the years, she has enjoyed playing a variety of roles, and some of her favorites include Cory in Barefoot in the Park, Mayella Ewell in To Kill a Mockingbird, and Cassie in Rumors. She has also had the privilege to be in commercials for Oil of Olay, Mary Kay, ACT Mouthwash, and Taco Bueno. She recently decided to combine her love for performing and reading to bring the written words to life. To find out more about Rachel, visit her website, actressrachelD.com, or follow her on Instagram at actressrachelD, or Twitter at TheRachelD. Thank you, Rachel. That'll be our show for the evening. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.